Okay, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. Starting today and for the next many months, uh, probably through most of 2019, we are going to continue our series on Revelation. Uh, I say continue because back in the spring uh, of this year and into the early part of the summer, I uh, preached a series of 12 messages, I think, dealing with the first three chapters of Revelation. And so the plan is to pick up with chapter 4 and to work our way through chapter 22. Uh, Chapters that deal with uh, the last things, uh, matters of eschatology, chapters that deal with our future glorification, chapters that deal with the end, uh, you might say that deal with the finale, uh, the goal, the purpose, uh, the reason, the design of history, the objective, the consummation of all things. That's, That's really what this is is about. Uh, now, I, I believe that the first event that sort of triggers the end is the rapture of the church, uh, which is, a, we say sometimes, a signless event. There are no sort of signs um, before this. Uh, Pastor Shane recently, recently preached a message on that from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, this catching away of the church. Paul writes there uh, in chapter 4, verse 15, for this, I, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. That's going to happen in a moment, uh, in the twinkling of an eye, just, just dramatic change. And this is, uh, I think, the first event at the coming of Christ, the rapture of the church. There are no signs, as I said, leading up to it. Uh, this is not describing the day of the Lord uh, event. Uh, this is not describing Christ's return to judge and to establish his kingdom. Uh, There is no judgment in this or any of the other, uh, you might say, rapture passages. This is the catching away or the snatching away of uh, the church. Uh, Only those who are in Christ, uh, God is going to take us. Uh, He will descend from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise and then we who are alive and remain, Paul says, who are also in Christ will be caught up. Then comes a period that we call the tribulation, a period of judgment on the earth. Uh, Revelation chapters 4, uh, which again was sort of where we'll be picking up through chapter 19. These chapters, uh, that the, the, the bulk of the book of Revelation describes these things in detail. Uh, Daniel also talks about it as well in detail. It's a period that is described as a sequence of judgments that start out as seals and then trumpets and then bowls. Uh, telescoping these judgments that come upon the earth at the same time. Uh, there's a great work of salvation and redemption going on uh, on the earth along with that judgment. But at the end of that period of time, the end of, of that seven-year tribulation, Christ will come again. If you're there in Revelation, you can look over at Revelation. This uh, just sort of describes this, this, uh, coming, of, this coming of Christ. Uh, Revelation 19, verse 11 says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it, 
is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth, verse 15, comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then we have the 20th chapter of Revelation, which describes the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennial kingdom, a 1,000-year a kingdom on earth. And then comes the end, when Christ hands over the kingdom of God uh, to, to God the Father, uh, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished uh, is death. Uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And that is, that is, that is this, this end that I'm speaking of. Paul actually uses that, that terminology. This is, this is the end. This is the goal. This is uh, the consummation. So if you just sort of, if you think about, just sort of step back and get the, the big picture if you want to know what the purpose of, of creation is, if you want to know what the purpose of redemption is, uh, if you want to know what the purpose is for, for God to tolerate everything uh, that he has tolerated throughout all of human history, it's so that he can give to his son a kingdom, so that he can give to his son a kingdom made up of people who will love him and worship him and adore him and serve him forever uh, in perfect joy, perfect peace, and with perfect purity. That is, that is the goal. So Christ is, is, is capturing his kingdom. It is a kingdom of resurrection human beings, the redeemed of all the ages. They're, they're all raised uh, they're all they're worshiping Christ, and all of the wicked are raised, and they have been forever judged, and then comes the end. And we know this millennial kingdom ends when Peter says this in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, the, the elements are, are destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works are burned up. When, when the universe, as it, as it, in a sense, sort of implodes atomically, and is uncreated just as it was created. That is to say that it goes out of existence, and in its place is a new heaven and a new earth. And that is when Christ hands over the kingdom to, to, his, Paul says, to the God and Father. When does he do that? Not until he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The plan of redemption... Redemption itself is not complete until there are no more enemies of God in Christ in existence to tamper with His purposes. They will all be cast forever into the lake of fire. They will be bound there with Satan and his angels for whom it was originally created, and they will dwell there forever, never again to impede the purposes of God. And when that happens, when He has abolished all rule... That means there's no other rule other than himself. He is called, in Revelation, what? The king of kings. 
right? The King of kings and Lord of lords. And when he has abolished all authority, when he has abolished all other power, when he has destroyed all his enemies, put them under his feet, when he is sovereign over everything, when there is no other rule, when there is no other power, there is no other authority, when Christ reigns and Christ reigns absolutely supremely with his saints, every human, every, every enemy human, every enemy demonic, uh, every ruler, every, every authority, every source of power abolished, he will reign. And that's at the end of the millennial kingdom when every last rebel is judged. Then, as I said, comes, then comes a new heaven and a new earth, and Christ and God dominate in glory. So I'm just saying that's, that, is where, that, that is where history is, is going. And, oh, by the way, that is where we are going, right? That is not just where history is going. That is where, where we are going as his people. And we have this, this wonderful description in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, of course, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's talking about uh, the, the issue of, of the resurrection, but he says this in verse 27, 1 Corinthians 15, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is ex- accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subject, uh, subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. So that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, very, a very powerful statement. What it says is this, that when the Son has received the redemption, when, when the Son has received His redeemed humanity, when all of His enemies are destroyed and He is King of kings and Lord of lords, sovereign of the universe, when everything is under Him except God Himself, He will then take the kingdom, all that the Father has given to Him, and He will give it back to the Father in a reciprocal act of divine love that God may be all in all. And that is this sort of, this, this, this uh, in, we sometimes say that this inter-Trinitarian love. It's, it's this wonderful inter-Trinitarian way, the, the Father who ordained redemptive history to gather a people for His Son, a kingdom for His Son. When the Son receives that kingdom which is a gift of the Father's love, in a reciprocating act of love, the Son will hand the kingdom back to the Father. A crowning event that is so amazing and so spectacular that it's difficult to imagine. You know, sometimes, and the reason I, before we even get into, really, Revelation 4, the reason I want you to just think about this bigger picture is because I would say most of the time, uh, not just sometimes, I would say probably most of the time, we think about salvation in very personal terms, right? So we tend to think very individualistic about salvation, right? And no question that it, it is a personal thing, right? It's certainly not an impersonal thing. It is a personal thing. Salvation is a personal thing. It is an, it is an individual thing. And so it's not, in, it's not sinful or wrong to, to emphasize that, that aspect, but it's probably better for us to think about salvation in these, these vast and almost incomprehensible terms. That salvation, while you're involved in it by the grace of God, it's really not about you, and it's really not about me. And so that's, that's I guess, the, the, the trap, I think, that we fall into in our lives, and it's, it's, because of our, it's just because of our, our very short-sighted, near-sighted, very myopic 
perspective that we have, right? We tend to get bogged down with our concerns and our cares and our trials and our suffering and our sin, right? And we, we, we don't set our minds on things above. We don't set our minds on Christ. We tend to get sort of burdened down with the cares of this life. We talked about how that affects us emotionally, right? With our worries and our anxieties and our fears, that, that is a very common thing for us. Uh, and so we tend to get, I think, pulled into this sort of way of thinking about our salvation um, and, and, not, and not think about that bigger picture of what God is doing. And so uh, as Shane made this comment, in fact, last, uh, last week when he was in 2 Thessalonians he, in chapter 2, he, he mentioned the fact that, that we tend to think about eschatology as this thing that's sort of tagged on to the end. Right, that we you go through all of these areas of doctrine and theology, and, and this is the way that most theology books are laid out. Right, you talk about the scriptures, and you talk about theology proper: God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, man, redemption, and all that. And then on the end, you talk about the last things. And he made this comment that one of the things that if you were that, that a Jew, that a, maybe the a, a person that's Jewish, a different perspective they would have had is they would have thought about the end first. <laughs> Where are we going? Where is this going, right? And so they want, want to know where, where was, what is the end and then sort of in a way backtrack from there. Uh, that's certainly important, I think, for us to think about eschatology in that way, to not see it as just sort of, so, some sort of uh, appendage that we tag on to the end of our, our theological studies. But I think another uh, maybe uh, difference in the way that we think about salvation and the way the Jews thought about salvation is I think the Jews had more of that corporate mindset. They tended to think about salvation and redemptions in that more corporate way. Again, not, not to discount or to uh, somehow erase that individual personal side of it, but they certainly had, uh, I, I think, a sense of, 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 of that uh, corporate aspect of these things. And so this is not about uh, you and I uh, so much as it's, it's, it's about the infinite love, the limitless love, the, the eternal love of the Father for the Son and wanting to give to the Son a gift of His love, which is a redeemed humanity that will love Him and adore and worship Him and praise Him and serve Him forever. And it's about the Son recognizing that all the redeemed are gifts from the Father. And so think about this. John John even says this, right? Jesus says this, and John records it in John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And so Christ certainly understood it to be that way. These are gifts to him from the Father. And the Son, when he receives them all, gives them back to the Father. Everything is restored to God that he may be, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, all in all. The Son has come as a servant of God into the world to take back to God redeemed souls. He has conquered death and by his own resurrection provided a full resurrection for all who believe. And when all are gathered, as it were, into his arms, he will take them all and present them to the Father and will himself subject his own life to the Father. Christ will continue to rule... Because his reign is eternal, but he will reign in his former full and glorious place within the Trinity, subject to God in the way eternally designed for him in full Trinitarian glory. Still reigning, because Revelation 11.15 says that he will reign forever. In fact, in Luke chapter 1, 
You remember the angel Gabriel said to Mary in verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So Jesus Christ will reign forever and ever. If you read read, uh, the third chapter of Revelation, verse 21, you remember that promise to the overcomer, uh, that sort of future incentive offered the lukewarm. This was the lukewarm in Laodicea. It says there, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. That is to say, they, the Son and His Father, rule together. But in some way, they have distinct roles, and even the Son gives glory to the Father. And yet they reign and rule together. That is why in chapter 4 and chapter 5, they are equally praised. For example, and we'll get into this in the next couple of weeks, but you'll see there in chapter 4, for example, verse 8 of chapter 4, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Worthy are you, verse 11, our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. So we have this glimpse glimpse of of heavenly worship. And then down in chapter 5, verse 9, it refers to Christ. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Verse 12, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then it sort of all comes together in verse, verse, verses 13 and 14. And every created thing which is in, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So God is all and, 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 and He is all in all in the end because the Son gives back what the Father has given to Him in submission. Which is an incredible picture. But that is where this is all going. And so you can't, you can't just get, if you will, in, into your theology and learn about who God is and then learn about uh, what the Scriptures teach about who you are and your place and our need for salvation and the work of Christ and the church and then all of a sudden you punt on third down, right? You can't do that, okay? Um, the, the end... This, this, the end of these things is very, very important. Um, the end of, you might say the end of the story matters. And the clearest place in the New Testament that reveals that future history is Revelation. And, and it's, so, it's so chronological, if you, just, if you just read through it. I mean, if you don't, just sit down and just read through the book. It's so chronological, it's difficult to miss where this thing is headed. You have the church, again, I've sort of, uh, I kind of address this outline, I'll, I'll come back to it, but 
uh, you have the church in chapters 2 and 3, and then you don't have a mention of the church again until the end of the book. So you have, you have the church in those first two chapters, and we talked, we, I said, worked our way through those, those uh, churches of Asia Minor, those seven churches, those seven, seven messengers and seven letters, and we talked about in detail all those things. And then once you get beyond chapter 3, then, then you I said the scene shifts to heaven. We'll look at that in chapters 4 and 5. And then you have this, this war machine that begins to, to get going, and there's this explosion on the earth, and it even tells you the time of that, very explicit details about what that is going to entail, which, as I said, ends up with the return of Christ who sets up a thousand-year kingdom, and after that, a new heaven and a new earth. It's very, it's very simple, right? It's just very straightforward, um, and it matters. Uh, it matters because we, we, don't have to, we don't have to fix the culture, all right? We don't have to save the planet. Okay? We, that's not, that is not our, our mandate. Right? This, this is a short-term planet, and mankind, Scripture tells us, is going from bad to worse. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3.13, but evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So we don't need to protect the environment. We don't need to reform the culture. And again, I'm not saying that we don't be, we're not to be good stewards. What I'm saying is that, you know, I read, I read a lot of last night on this uh, recent, um, the, the climate report that's come out. Uh, of course, they're just now sort of, they've done the research and now they're sort of coming out with their conclusions and things. And it just, there's just statements in there that, that will boggle your mind. I mean, it, when you think about, first of all, how many things they've gotten wrong, uh, over the last few decades as far as their predictions, but then even stated in, in the conclusions that they are making predictions. That they're, they're, they're telling you at the beginning that a lot of the things that they're saying will happen are actually, it's highly probable that they actually won't happen. There's actually a paragraph in there. If you just kind of dig around a little bit, you find this little paragraph, and it says that some of these conclusions are actually, are actually that's the way they're, they're, they're pitched. They're the sort of worst-case scenario is what they're doing. So we can get all wrapped up in that. We can get all wrapped up in trying to reform, reform the culture. We don't need to do that. We don't need to take up all these social and environmental causes. In fact, I would say that when we do that, it just indicates that we have abandoned the gospel and our mission mandate. Again, you may remember when we looked at the last section of chapter 3 in the letter uh, from the Lord Jesus to the church at Laodicea, the that congregation that was full of itself, but as we said, but empty of Christ. It was a liberal church in many ways, uh, in large part an unregenerate church. Uh, with those in the church that were challenging the lordship of Christ over his church, who thought that they were intellectual and thought that they were, were well-educated and well-trained, who thought that they were spiritual, who thought that they were savvy, but didn't know that they were self-deceived. Professing Christians who didn't know that they were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, Jesus says, and who sickened the Lord by their lukewarmness, who made him want to vomit them out of his mouth. And we said this about the lukewarm church, that when we think about a lukewarm church, most people think about a church that used to be growing or that used to be exciting and that isn't like that anymore. Right, so we tend to when we when we I think when people read about the this particular final letter to this this seventh 
church, I think the tendency is for people to, to think that this, this is, is a church that is just simply uh, dated. It's just simply a church that's dull. Or a church that is made up of Christians who used to walk with the Lord and were on fire for the Lord and then simply cooled off in their walk for the Lord. And so, so people tend to think about this idea of lukewarmness in, in emotional terms. Right? That we were excited and on fire for the Lord and passionate and that what happened is our passion and excitement just, just calmed down. But that's not really what Christ was concerned about. Christ was concerned because a lukewarm church is one that has started to, to generalize what Scripture has to say. Right? They've started to sort of uh, round off the corners. We see this in a lot of churches. If you, if you think about it, you go to a lot of church websites, you'll see this where uh, very, very few churches have doctrinal statements. Most churches will have what they might call core values or... or um, you know, distinctives, and I'm saying, well, we, we have some distinctives. I mean, we list some distinctives about our church on our church website, but we also have a doctrinal statement. But what's happened is these core values and distinctives have just become sort of four or five or six general things about where they stand, but they don't really get into the details. And so they, they, they abandon biblical standards. They abandon a gospel preaching. Uh, I think this is a church where social gospel efforts have supplanted any real gospel ministry because it's easier to take up those social issues and those, those environmental causes than it is to emphasize this particular message about the gospel of Christ because that's very polarizing to just preach Christ, right? Just preach and call people to repentance and faith in Christ alone for salvation. That's a very uh, offensive thing. That's a very polarizing thing. And so it's much easier to just get get ourselves, just drown ourselves in social causes. So we have a lot of churches that are not teaching the truth with precision and clarity, where, where biblical, uh, uh, the implications of those things are ignored, where people are getting more and more comfortable with each other's sins. I mean, I hear this all the time. I mean, where, where people are, they're in churches where they've got sin in their life, and there's, they, they can tell you about all the sin in everybody else's life in their church, but nobody seems to care about it. Right? They don't think it's anybody else's business to tell them to say anything about their sin, and they don't feel it's their responsibility to say anything about anybody else's sin. And so what happens is everybody just gets really comfortable with that environment. So we don't talk about that. We get comfortable with that. We, we, we find, the, find the lowest common denominator. We do that theologically and doctrinally, but we do that morally as well. Right. So what happens is we just find, we find sort of the, 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 the lowest bar the lowest standard morally in the church, and then we just sort of adapt everything to that. So this is going on. Convictions about personal holiness as a life pursuit are viewed as over the top. Questionable cultural morals and worldly influences are coming into the life of the church. Inclusivity prevails. Leadership is turned on its head. And people will not endure sound doctrine, but want to have their ears tickled. That is what I think is meant by lukewarmness. It's not, it's not an emotional, uh, you were once emotionally hot and high, and now you've cooled off in that sense. This is, this is, the, this is talking about uh, even down to theology, life, morals, practice, preaching, all of those things, gospel, clarity, all of that has gone out. That is what is meant by 
lukewarmness. And, and this kind of church is found in every generation. And Jesus said it makes him sick, it makes him gag. So we have no mandate, folks, to, to fix the culture. It is what it is, and it's under the complete control of God. Okay? If you want to know what is going on in the culture today, it's just the cycle of Romans 1. Okay? It's, just, it's as simple as it's, it's the wrath of God being revealed. That's what's going on. What we do have in the midst of that culture is a mandate to do what? To make disciples, right? Because right before telling us about this ongoing revelation of the wrath of God against ungodliness and wickedness, what does Paul say in Romans 1 about the gospel? It is the power of God unto salvation, right? So this is, this is our mandate. Our mandate is not to get caught up in, in, in these, these uh, uh, environmental battles or these, these cultural battles. Our, our mandate is to, is to preach Christ, right? It's to make disciples, to preach the gospel, and to build up the church. Because the church is the kingdom where God rules, is that this is where God is, this is where His kingdom is on display. It is on display in our time through the church. Colossians 1, Paul said this in verse 13, For He, speaking of God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So God has transferred us into the kingdom in which His Son is the reigning King. That is the church. The church is the kingdom of those who are Christ's. And the church is the kingdom through which the Lord is fulfilling His saving purpose. And we are called to serve in that kingdom. The true church belongs to God and we are His servants. We are are His servants. We are His slaves, and the kingdom is ordered by the Scriptures, which means that what sets, what sets the center and the boundaries and everything, uh, the, the sort of, the, you might say, the circumference and everything inside of that when it comes to, to ministry is what the king says. And what he says is that as his people, we are to be pursuing a holy worship, we are, to, we are to be building up one another in sanctification, that we are, to, we are to be dealing with sin in the church, and that we are to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where does that take place? On earth, in the gathering of the redeemed, right? In the gathering of God's people. So we teach and we preach the Scriptures, which is the clearest path to salvation and sanctification in worship, and we commit ourselves to faithfully practice church discipline, even though it is viewed by most as an altogether unloving thing. But we do it. We do it. Dealing with sins of disunity, dealing with sins of impurity, dealing with with sins of, of heresy and false teaching. Why? Because we have orders from the King Himself. And... It's his church, right? I mean, that's really the thing that, to me, sort of struck me as we went through those, those first three chapters of Revelation is, is, the, is the control, the sovereign control of Christ over his church. 
right? He is, he is assessing his church. He is leading his church. He is protecting his church. He is chastening his church. All of those things, but his intimate involvement is he's in the midst of the lampstands. This is his church. And he has given us clear and needful and sufficient instruction about the end. Again, I go back to a quotation from Martin Luther that I mentioned at the very beginning of this study where Luther said this, that there are only two days in my calendar, this day and that day. This day and that day. So he's saying, essentially, there are, there are only two days on my calendar, today and that day. Those are really the only ones I'm concerned about, right? I'm not concerned about, you know, as Matthew 6, Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has enough worries of its own, right? So we don't want to speculate and, and let all those what-ifs of tomorrow and next week and next month, we, we don't want to get weighed down with those things. But here's what we do focus on. We get focused on our God-given responsibilities today, and we do pay attention to, and we do focus on that day. Right? We're told explicitly to do that. Or to think about it another way, these are the things that ought to concern us. What Christ is doing now and what Christ will do in the future. And the book of Revelation focuses our attention on both of those things. Because it tells us what Christ is doing now in the church, right? And it tells us what he is going to do in the sense that he is, it says, has much to say, Revelation has much to say about that day, right? As it takes the wrapper off of tomorrow and gives us a guided tour of the end times, the end of human history. And the majority of this book is futuristic. So we have pro- prophecies about the end of human history that ought to be read and understood and ought to serve as a, as a force in our lives, cause, calling us to greater service and faithfulness and steadfastness. But this book also reminds us that the seasons of the life of God's people until Christ returns are always the same. That doesn't mean that the circumstances are all specifically the same or in detail, but our need is Universal. Our need is singular. It's always the same. Whether we're whether we're in 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 a in a season of where we we have the freedom to worship the Lord as we have had in, in at least in our context, or whether we happen to be in a season of suffering or persecution where we are hated and our gospel message is is maligned and blasphemed. Whether we live in a time when the fruitfulness of ministry has been allowed by the Lord to flourish or whether we live in a season when the church appears to have less of an impact due to the theological and moral compromise that's all around us. But all across this globe, the Christian's need is universal. The need is for us to know Christ, to know our Savior, to know His place in our lives, to know His place in the church, to see the splendor and the intimate watch care of our risen King and to know what, listen, to know what He wants us to know and has revealed about the future. We obviously don't know everything about the future, but we, we can't just look at those things regarding future and say, well, that's not important because it's in the Scriptures, right? So if nothing else drives us to be more faithful in our study of eschatology, it ought, it, you could just boil it down to something very simple and just say this, because it's in the Word. 
right? And all Scripture is profitable. So God wants us to do this. He wants us to think about the future, to live in light of the soon return of the Lord Jesus and to allow the imminence of that event to shape our lives and affect our decisions. That is to say, when it comes to life, God wants the Christian to turn to the back of the book. God wants us to think about the future. And this revelation, this truth given by the Father to His Son, the unveiling of what the Father wants known, given to His Son and communicated by His angel to His bondservant John, so that all of the bondservants of Jesus Christ would know the things which must soon take place. This particular book holds in the in that it holds a particular blessing and it's unique because it is God's last word about the last days so we need to read it we need to study it we need to keep it as bond servants of Christ we need to to hear hear what it says with spiritual ears and submit and come under it and when we do it will give us a needed perspective on history a needed perspective, so that we don't panic so much, right? Because, I mean, I don't know about you, but it's, I mean, people, people change from day to day just because of the weather, right? I mean, if they look outside and it's a little overcast and rainy, I mean, that affects their day, right? If they look outside and it's 72 and sunny, it literally affects the way they go about their day. Well, if that's the case, I mean, think about, I mean, think about all the stuff that we get bombarded with every week. I mean, just information, just, just current events, just things going on, it'll, it'll absolutely drive you crazy, right? But, again, our focus gets down here with all that stuff. And we, we need to think about the end. And when we do, it gives us a perspective because, folks, listen, the reality is there are some people, there are some, I hate to say this, there are some men in church today who are thinking more about the college rankings coming out at 1230 today? Some of you? Uh-huh. Yeah. What's that? Then there's some females? <laughs> All right. Well, Sherry, just go ahead and, uh, you know, you can... public. Yeah. Public confessions are good for the soul, I guess, you know. Uh, so there, there are some men and there are probably some women, maybe some that are wearing black and red, that are... Th- thinking a lot about those things, and their emotional life came crashing down, right, last night. The way, that they, the way that they started their day yesterday and the way that they ended their day yesterday, right, think about what that revolved around. We need perspective, don't we? That will help us to silence our fears and extinguish our worries. As we noted a few weeks ago when we looked at Luke chapter 12, verse 29, Jesus says, And do not seek what you will eat or what you will drink, and do not keep worrying for all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things, but seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Verse 35, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Moreover, studying and applying revelation and what God has revealed about the future will also give us a needed perspective of our suffering 
It will feed a steadfast hope. It will stoke our evangelism by reminding us that there is a second death. There are many, many of our family and friends and acquaintances who are going to experience the second death if they don't hear the gospel and trust in Christ. It will trigger pure worship of the triune God. We'll see that again very clear in these next two chapters. Uh, it will persuade us against sin. Because all of these things immediately lead you to think about whether or not you are honoring to Christ. Let me tell you, folks, if, if, you, if you go through this study in the next number of months, we go through this study, and we do not, we do not in the end of, at the end of that turn out to be a more holy people, we have made a major blunder, major blunder. If, we've, if we go into this study and say, I'm fascinated by it, I, I, man, I just get so intrigued, and, and I'm going to tell you, it's, it is intriguing, and it is fascinating, and it will be challenging, and we'll disagree about things. I'm okay with that. You know, we're, we're going to disagree about some of these things as we move forward, but, but I'm just going to tell you, this ought to cause us to think about whether or not we are living lives that honor Christ. Whether or not we are being renewed into the likeness of Christ, whether or not we have God's agenda as we think about what Christ is going to do, what He is doing now and what He plans to do in the future, are we on His page when it comes to that? Are we walking according to His Spirit? Is our flesh being subdued by His power? All those things. Think about what John says in 1 John 3, chapter, uh, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what, what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone, everyone, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. That is, that is like, that's an automatic thing. I mean, if you, now here's the question. If you truly do have this hope <laughs> fixed on him, that's the question. If you do have that, if you do have your hope firmly fixed on Christ, you will purify yourself just as Christ is pure. James chapter 5, verse 8, You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you, you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Right? Ever thought about that? <laughs> that would curb our grumbling, wouldn't it? If we could fix our focus on the return of Christ, right? If we could fix our, 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 our thoughts on, on those things that are above, if we could fix our attention on these promises of God, would that not curb our complaining, knowing that He is coming soon? His coming is near. The truth is there is a purifying hope when we know that someone with authority is about to show up. Right, I mean, it, I, I, I went by, just a simple example. <laughs> I went by the Dunkin' Donuts this morning. Somebody asked me, is that on the keto diet? Yeah. I didn't get anything that I shouldn't have gotten. I got the nursery people some munchkins is what I got. Yeah. <clears throat> but I go, I go into Dunkin' Donuts, and, and so I, I pop the hatch, and I'm, I'm going in to get the boxes of coffee, and when I turn around, there's a police officer. <laughs> and the police officer has parked right beside me. And I'm just telling you, you got to be, when that happens, okay, you do have, there is this split sort of thing that goes through your mind. 
of what have <laughs> it's like what have I done? You know, so I've got this one tail light that's got the red ref- tape on it because it's it's cracked and so. But I you, you put that and you just your little 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 uh, Jimmy rig that thing. I guess you'd say it kind of fix it up. You know, but it's like all these little things are going like. Like, he's like, has he seen this? Has he seen that? Is he going to ask me for something? You just immediately do that. There's just something about that. There's just something about when an authority shows up, it has that effect on you. It has that effect. He actually brought the munchkins out to my car because I went to get the coffee boxes first. And as I was going out, he thought I had forgotten the munchkin, which I would not forget the munchkins. <laughs> So I'm making, I'm making that second trip, and I'm going back in to get the munchkins, and here he comes, right? Here he comes. Purifying hope. <laughs> and then I realize he's got the munchkins. He's just coming to help. Nice guy. Nice guy. But there is a purifying hope, and we know that someone with authority is about to show up. And we need to place these things and this responsibility before the church so that they live in light of His coming and so that the world will see that we are convinced of His coming but are not afraid of it like they ought to be. We are living at the end of the age. The rapture of the church, again, is a signless event. Most of the events laid out in Revelation happen after the church has been taken out. But we need to live in light of Christ's second coming. Christ will restore all things. He is coming to judge, to reign, to save, to establish His earthly and then eternal kingdom. We need to teach these things because we need more urgency and more anticipation. More urgency because knowing, Paul says, knowing the fear or the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Right? Knowing what is coming when, it, when, it, when we're talking about that that, that judgment that is coming upon those who dwell on the earth, knowing that, knowing that, we persuade men. And we need more anticipation because God's people need to know there is hope in Jesus and not in things like fixing our culture or fixing the planet. Right? That's, that is not where our hope is. Our hope is in, in Christ and His victory. So we desperately need this revelation of Jesus Christ, and I'm looking forward to our time together in the coming months, uh, and I just ask for your prayers in that, um, and that the Lord would use, use all of that to the praise of His glory and grace. So we'll plan to, uh, of course, we'll have a little bit of a break at the end of December. I think it's those two Sundays, uh, the one right before Christmas uh, and then the one right before New Year's where we have worship service only. So we have 1030 worship, uh, no Bible study hour for those two weeks. But between now and then, we'll get into next Sunday, uh, Revelation chapter 4, um, and we'll see how far we can get. Uh, maybe we can get through 4 and get close to getting through chapter 5 before we take our break. And then, like I said, once we get to, those, once, once we get to chapter 6, the, the judgments begin to come. Uh, we will say, so well, we're going to try to keep things moving. I'm going to try to not get bogged down um, in the minutia, but, but cover these things in such a way that it motivates us to the things we just discussed. It motivates us uh, in the areas of holiness and church life and personal purity 
and building up the body and our sanctification and, and dealing with, uh, you know, being equipped so that we can, we can um, honor the Lord even in, in our suffering, whatever that may be. Um, God may have us in providentially, but really focused, I guess you might say, and, and the thing is, I don't think that I don't think this was not John's or really any writer of Scripture. I mean, this was not their intention for people to read the Scriptures without thinking pastorally through that, right? I mean, this is <laughs> all of Scripture again is meant for us to apply and to think through at a heart level, so that we can live lives that honor God. And so we're going to try to go through it, cover what we can, and uh, like I said, we'll agree on some, disagree on others, but try to keep it focused on those practical implications for our lives. Okay, folks, thanks for your time.